welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And on our penultimate programme before Christmas, we talk investment trusts with one of the industry's experts. Following our show a few weeks ago with the Association of Investment Companies, the industry body for investment trusts, we catch up with James DeSommeras, Director and Head of Investment Trusts for Janus Henderson Investors, and we find out how investment trusts work in practice and the history behind them. But first, let's get a quick roundup of the week's news. Yes, welcome all. And as we approach the finish line to Christmas this week, we hear that the Santa rally that usually occurs at this time of the year in stock markets seems likely to happen again, helped along by reassurance from the US's Federal Reserve on their continuing central bank support, as well as the nearing of a US government stimulus deal and an EU-UK Brexit trade deal. Yes, investors are in the holiday mood as they continue to load up on riskier assets and push markets to new heights. In the US on Wednesday, Congress intimated it was near to reaching an agreement on a second round of government stimulus for their battered economy. The figure mentioned is $900 billion, no small amount, and it includes checks of between $600 and $700 for US citizens. Not only is this a positive for markets, it means we may see more private investors getting involved as a fair slug of the first round of checks ended up in the stock markets. Also on Wednesday, the Fed said it was committed to its current rate of buying $120 billion of bonds of debt per month in its monetary support programs until substantial progress has been made in the economic recovery but it held back on any increases to asset purchases. And there's mixed views on whether or not this is sufficient at the moment, considering the economic weakness. The S&P 500 is up 40 points to 3,701. On Brexit, EC President Ursula von der Leyen mentioned to the European Parliament that there was a path to an agreement on the deal. And in the UK, there were reports that ministers may be recalled from their Christmas break to vote on it. It led shares higher, with traders noting the UK's strong catch-up potential if or when the deal is sealed. UK investors also seemed cheered by so far so good in the vaccine rollout, as BioNTech reported that 140,000 Brits have now been vaccinated, including our very own Gandalf, Sir Ian McKellen. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee also got together on Thursday and have held rates at historic lows of 0.1%. The stock 600 is up 6 points to 398, while the FTSE 100 is down 29 points as it generally doesn't like a stronger pound, the domestically focused FTSE 250 is up 429 points to 20,185. Elsewhere in the globe, all eyes are on the vaccine rollouts, and the movement into riskier assets has seen oil jump. Brent crude has gone from around $44 a month ago to $51 today. 
Okay, moving on to companies. And Revolution Bars has launched an attack on the government's coronavirus restrictions, with Chief Executive Rob Pitcher saying the government's actions towards bars and late-night hospitality were nothing short of scandalous. Elsewhere, the chairman of Weatherspoons, Tim Martin, has also repeated his criticisms of lockdowns, calling them ineffective. Boris Johnson has defended the government's tier-based COVID restrictions in England, saying they will drive the disease down. Weatherspoon's share price is down 35% this year. Hornby, maker of model railways, Corgi Cars and Scale Electric, is pausing all international orders until January next year because of uncertainty around post-Brexit trade rules. Hornby boss Lyndon Davies said, Within Europe, people are already asking us if I buy something, are those tariffs included in your pricing? Because we don't know what's going to happen, it's just a very difficult position. Mr Davis also complained there are huge problems shipping products into the UK because of the bottlenecks at ports such as Felixstowe and Southampton. Hornbridge share price is up 39% this year. And finally, stock market listed fast fashion retailer Boohoo has said that they are fixing things at the firm. It's drawn criticism over workers' paying conditions and its ultra-low pricing model. The firm's co-founder, Mahmoud Kamani, who rarely speaks in public, said he wanted to make everything better. Mr Kamani was being questioned by MPs looking into the impact of fast fashion, but as well as facing questions around the environmental impact of its business model, Boohoo has been accused of tolerating widespread abuses of employment law at some of its suppliers in Leicester. Investigations earlier this year suggested workers were being paid below the minimum wage. Boohoo's share price is up 5% this year. Okay, so that's the week in markets and companies. And now on to this week's interview. And today we find out some more about investment trusts from one of the industry's practitioners, James Sommers from Janice Henderson. Now, we've spoken about investment trusts in a previous pod with industry trade body, the Association of Investment Companies, the AIC. But I wanted to extend the conversation a little from the perspective of a fund provider, as there is plenty of rich history scattered across the industry and some of the older trusts. But also, there's plenty to understand about some of those unique features that make them work really well for the private investor. So with me today, I've got the Director and Head of Investment Trust at Janice Henderson Investors, James de Summerez. So James, let's start with a bit of this history then. How and why? I mean, this idea of a fund, a collective that they are commonly known, how did this, how did this come about and when? Well, it actually came about in, in the latter part of the 19th century. 1867, uh, was the uh, the incorporation date of the first investment trust company. And the idea behind it was to give the, the man of modest means, uh, that's ordinary sort of private investors, the opportunity to invest in, in, in things um, uh, that were exciting investments that just weren't accessible to small investors at the time. Um, a lot of investment at the, in, in, in the ninth, that part of the 19th century was in uh, what, what you could describe as civilising the... the the empire uh, as it was at the time. So it was railroads, it was electricity companies, 
um, in, in, in South America, in North America, in Africa, uh, in, in all parts of the world, really. Um, and, um, and obviously institutional investors were, were investing in this, but the man of modest means wasn't able to. So investment trusts were created um, to do precisely that. And that's why the first investment trust was called the Foreign and Colonial Investment Trust. Okay, interesting. And they didn't invest in shares at that time. That wasn't really a popular financial security. It was something else, wasn't it? No, no. Basically, they, they invested in fixed interest securities, in, in bonds issued by those, those companies. Um, so a lot of sort of electric companies, as I said, you know, a lot of railroad companies, etc., would, would issue bonds and then uh, investors would buy them. So that was the predominant investment at the time. Right. OK. And but, but very soon thereafter, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, yeah. that they moved into equities, you know, within about 20, 30 years of that. So equities did become a much more um, common investment. And then equities really have dominated investment trusts up until the start of this century, when we had the advent of alternative investment investment trust. Right. OK. And then in terms of Janice Henderson's trust, I mean, some of those are pretty old, right? Yes, indeed. Some of those are, are very old. Um, um, the Bankers Investment Trust, um, which is our big global growth investment trust, was incorporated in 1888. Oh. And it was called the Bankers Investment Trust because eight of the founding uh, nine directors were, were bankers by profession. So it doesn't invest in banks. It's just called bankers because the original directors were bankers by, by profession. But that's a very old trust. Um, probably sort of slightly more interesting to your, uh, to your listeners would be um, um, the City of London Investment Trust. Uh, which is our very successful uh, UK equity income uh, investment trust, because that was originally a brewery company. Um, and it eventually sold, when it sold its, uh, its, its uh, brewery on the, uh, the side of the Thames here in the city of London, uh, they used the money that they got from the sale of that property to invest in the shares of other companies and become an investment trust. But they still actually um, owned and managed pubs up until the 1960s. And then they sold the pubs in the 1960s and became a full investment trust. So, you know, they have got very interesting histories. OK, that's interesting. Am I right in saying that one trust has held HSBC, the bank, since its initial public offering when it first floated on the stock market? Yes, that was um, the Bankers Investment Trust, actually. Um, HSBC was amongst the first investments um, that Bankers Investment Trust made. And they, they have held it ever since in one form or another. I mean, I think it, back in 1887, the investment in HSBC was was a bit more uh, fixed income than than equity, but it became equity very soon, and there's been equity ever since. Okay, so this is painting a good picture of how long these investment trusts have been around, how they've stood the test of time. So, and it, and it began very much with this private investors, you say, it enabled you access to these assets that would have just been too risky or, or, or you know, far too big a barrier to get into in the first place. So when then did the industry start seeing much bigger institutional investors, people like pension funds start to, to come in and wade in on the action? Well, the, the answer, interestingly, is it was stayed as private investors right the way through to the Second World War. But after the Second World War, um, the idea of invest, investing internationally um, started to gain uh, popularity. And actually, investment trust managers um, started to uh, get into investing internationally uh, much earlier than other institutions did. So the institutions started buying into the investment trusts to, um, um, to, to access that, um, that international investment. 
Um, and that's really when the institution started, started coming in. And at that time, so this is in the 1950s and into the 1960s, um, in those days, it was very tax efficient for private investors to hold insurance related products. Um, so there wasn't a level playing field between investment and insurance as we, we know it today. Um, there were actually um, sort of there were tax advantages in investing in insurance and tax disadvantages in investing in investment trusts or, um, or open ended funds. Um, so the institution has built the holding. Now that all got readdressed in the early 80s. Uh, and then we saw the, the swing back as institutions started to sell uh, their investments, because obviously over those years, institutions started to uh, started to build their own international investment capability. Mm. So when then did the necessity, I mean, open ended funds, funds as traditional funds, as they are called now, are a much bigger part of the industry than investment trusts. There's about three and a half thousand open-ended funds, there's about 400 investment trusts. So when did they start to emerge and and why was this concept of open-ended structures suddenly seen as a necessity? Well, um, the, 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 you know, the first uh, open-ended fund was launched by M&G and that was back in the 1930s, I think. Um, but I think that what changed things for the open-ended market was it was was in the early 80s. 1980s, when um, the market opened up and, and financial advisors um, started looking at advising on investment as well as insurance. A lot of financial advisors, uh, independent financial advisors back in the 1980s were, were, you know, were originally primarily focused on, on selling insurance products, but they started selling investment and open-ended funds were able to um, offer commissions in those days. And so the independent financial advisors started recommending open-ended funds in preference to, to investment trusts because they were paid commissions to do it. Um, now, of course, all that has changed and is now illegal to have incentives like that. But in the 1980s, they existed and that did, did change things and make, um, you know, make open-ended funds very, very popular. And for a lot of wealth manager type investors, um, larger investors, open-ended funds, um, you know, are... Uh, more liquid than an investment trust is, and therefore, you know, they 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 like it as a as as, as a structure. So when we say liquid, we mean it's just easier to get in and out of them. Um, uh, easier at... to get in and out of them in size. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. I see. I see. Um, so it's when... easy to get in and out of an investment trust if you if you're a if you're a private investor. It's it's mm. slightly more difficult if you're a, a a professional investor with a very big sum of money. Yes, because as a private investor, you're never going to be, well, you're unlikely to be buying a very large amount, which is, which is why it shouldn't be an issue with, with investment trust. Um, yeah. So did this, did this emergence of open-ended funds then, um, you know, kneecap the investment trust industry? Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say it kneecapped the investment trust industry. The investment trust industry has continued to, to deliver what it says on the team. And, you know, it, it, you know, I think investment trusts, you know, they, they've been looking after the, um, the, the investments and savings of, of families over many generations very, very successfully. Uh, and that continued. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, what was great about the 1980s with the levelling of the playing field and, and the removal of, um, of, of commissions and you know, tax disincentives and things, it, it, it gave investment trusts a chance to, um, to reappeal to the private investor. And I think since, since the middle eighties, you know, in, interest in investment trust amongst private investors has been growing steadily. 
um, and you know is now a very significant part of of, of the share registers of uh, of investment trusts, specifically the very you know the older investment trusts, the more traditional equity based ones. So it sort of provided a carrot incentive to kick out some of the the big boys in the investment trusts and and leave it for just the private investors, which is what it was originally designed for. Well, yes, it is a bit like that. I, I, I wouldn't say kicking out. I think institutions <laughs> happily sold of their own accord. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, over the last 25 years, we've seen ex- increasing interest in investment trusts by wealth managers um, and in- increased demand because wealth managers themselves have grown as, as, as more and more people have realised they need investment advice. But equally, um, as you rightly say, private investors um, have grown. Um, there's a lot more people out there interested in investment and making their own investments. And those sorts of people are, are very often choosing investment trusts. Brilliant. Well, let's let's bring it all the way up to today then and, and say, let me ask you, you know, how are investment trusts relevant today? Well, investment trusts are relevant today because people need to to save. People need to invest for the future. Um, and, you know, whether you're investing for your retirement, you know, so you've got enough money when you retire or whether you're investing um, for some big event like a you know, that fabulous holiday or you're, you know, you're worried about your children's weddings and you've got to pay for those or whatever, whatever you're saving for over the medium to long term, investment trusts remain a very, a very good way uh, of, um, uh, of doing that. Um, investment trusts are pooled funds after all. You know, when you buy an investment trust, your investment trust share, you're getting a share in a whole load of other companies and that broad spread um, that broad spread of risk through a pooled fund is um, is very attractive for for, for for investors. And you know, if you look at um, you know uh, banks at the moment, if you put your money into a bank, um, you're earning almost nothing on it, absolutely nothing. And it, it absolutely astonishes me. We, we we did some research here at Janice Henderson, and uh, um, and the amount of money, I mean, you know, trillions of pounds that sits in bank accounts, earning almost no interest. And, you know, whilst I absolutely accept that we all need to have some cash ready for emergencies, I think there are an awful lot of people who, who've got more cash than they actually need. And actually, you know, on a medium to long term view, would be very much better off investing it um, in something like an investment trust um, to get a better return um, over time. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's a great way to, you know, diversification, spread your risk as well amongst a number of investments. So all your eggs aren't in one basket as well. This is why these sort of pooled vehicles are a good way to access stock markets. Absolutely. So, so I mean, we've spoken, you know, you've talked about how these are a great option for the private investor. And I, and I know we are going to go into some of the, the features in a little bit more detail. But why are they a great, a great option for the private investor? Uh, well, I think that they're, they're good for it's very difficult for a private investor to make a good investment decision on an individual company. Um, you know, and the advantage of an investment trust is you're you're buying a, a share in a portfolio of a large number of companies where those companies have been chosen by a professional manager. Um, and I think that gives you that spread of risk. It gives you that that expertise and it gives you a much better chance of um, of, of having a, a rewarding uh, experience in terms of your your investments you know things do happen to individual companies um, you know we saw that with the banks a few years ago we saw that with the oil companies a few years ago and so if you're just invested in one oil company or one bank and something happens it can have a very detrimental impact 
on your um, on your on your investments. Whereas if you buy into an investment trust uh, with its broad spread of investments, if for any reason one investment in that portfolio um, um, you know has a big problem and falls substantially in value, it has very little impact. Uh, on the value of your investment, because you know you've, you're you're actually invested in you know in a hundred different companies through the investment trust. So, so I think it is a, you know, it's a very sensible way for investors to uh, to invest their money. And investment trusts, you know, they offer a variety of different types of investment trusts. So you can, uh, you know, you can buy a global general fund, which which is investing across the globe, or you can buy something specifically in the UK for income or for growth or for both. And you can do likewise with other parts of the world, whether it be America or or, um, or Europe or, or the Asia-Pacific region or even emerging markets. I want to get on to boards. I mean, they are a company, they're structured as a company and they have an independent board that sits above them. And, and you've obviously had a lot of experience with boards over the years and there are 13 trusts at Janice Henderson, so that's 13 different boards. Um, so tell me, I mean, are they effective? Are they how how useful is an independent board? But board, the independent boards, uh, you know, are there to look after the interests of shareholders. So they're very important, and they do a very very good job. Um, you know, they they are they are a level of governance uh, within the investment trust. They they meet regularly every quarter, usually um, sometimes more often. But they they will hold us to account as fund managers. They will um, ask the fund manager questions. The fund manager will present to them on what he's doing in the portfolio and why he's doing it, and they will ask questions about that. Um, they they negotiate fees with us, and that's one of the reasons investment trusts often have very competitive fees. So um, I think independent boards um, really look after shareholders' interests um, and and hold us as as the fund manager uh, uh, to account for for what we're actually doing. And I think. You know that means that there is never any risk of complacency amongst the, the 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 fund managers, and I think that's good news for shareholders. I mean, do they have ultimate power? What happens if they really didn't like what a fund manager was doing with a portfolio? I mean, do they have ultimate power? Could they take that portfolio away from that fund manager? Absolutely. Well, absolutely, they could. They mm. could fire the fund manager and and hire another another fund manager to to manage the portfolio instead, uh, and that does does happen from time to time. What about income? I mean, investment trusts have these things called a revenue reserve. Um, can you talk a little bit about what this is first? Well, the revenue reserve basically is because it's a company structure, uh, an investment trust is is able to uh, put aside a little bit of income in good years um, to to um, to and then make it available in sort of bad or difficult years. Um, an investment trust has to distribute at least 85% of its income. But what, what investment trust boards and managers want to achieve is a steady and growing income. Um, and so what happens is, is that you'd, 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 issue, you'd pay your dividend in a good year and then you keep a little bit of that revenue back. You put it in the revenue reserve and in, you know, on a, in a rainy day, a year when it, things are not good, then you can use that money to to maintain or continue to grow um, the dividend, and that's obviously obviously good news for shareholders. So this year, for example, has been a very difficult year for income. Um, there's been a lot of press coverage around companies that have that have cut their dividends or or, or not paid dividends at all. 
So this is a sort of rainy day year when investment trusts are dipping into revenue reserves to, to maintain or grow their dividends. And they will then restock those dividends, uh, those revenue reserves in, in future years, which, which when, when things are much better. Well, let's use two um, Janice Henderson trusts then. I mean, bankers and City are both income paying trusts. Did they have to use their revenue reserves? Yes, they did. Yes, mm. they have this year. And, um, and, you know, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we, we all know this year has been very, very difficult. You know, if this isn't a rainy day, I don't know what is. But there have been many, many years when, when they haven't dipped into the revenue reserve, so they've been able to add to the revenue reserve. So, you know, the revenue reserve's there for years like this. And what that means for, 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 for shareholders, and particularly those shareholders that are, are, depend on the income, is that they know that income will still be paid and that they will still get it. And better still, that, that dividends, those dividends and that income will continue to grow. I mean, City of London Investment Trust has a sort of 55-year track record of increasing its dividend. So, I mean, 55 years is a very long time. Um, that takes us back for those uh, of the listeners who are, are old enough to, and interested enough in football to, to when England won the World Cup. So 1966. So, it, you know, this is a really, really important thing for, for, for investors, you know, who need that, uh, that certainty of the income coming in. Is that is it the is it the same across the investment trust industry? I mean, do do many trusts have much revenue reserve left after this year? Oh yes, I think I think a number of investment trusts will have revenue reserves left after this year. Um, um, a lot of trusts have revenue reserves that that, that you know could could equate to approaching a year's dividends. And you know, whilst dividends have been cut, they haven't disappeared altogether. So. Um, um, so, I, you know, I think that the revenue reserves will be dipped into this year, but there will still be revenue, revenue reserves available. One of the um, features of uh, today is that we are seeing very low bond yield because of quantitative easing programmes. We've seen dividends being slashed um, uh, across the globe um, uh, because of the crisis as well. So income from their traditional places, bonds and equities and company shares, is, is a bit paltry at the moment. And that's driving quite a lot of, of demand for this alternative income space in areas like infrastructure that, that, and property that pay out um, uh, income as well, but in more unusual areas of the market. Does Janice Henderson play in, the, in this space? No, not really. Um, we're not really alternative investment managers, um, as it stands. Our, our, our investment trust business is, is, is what I would call a traditional one. So um, all of our investment trusts really manage, uh, um, uh, they, they, all, they all invest in, in equities fundamentally. We've got one, one investment trust which, which invests in bonds. And um, the other feature that's quite important with investment trust is this idea that it can borrow in order to make extra investments in the market, known as gearing. Um, does it have a big impact on performance gearing? Uh, well, uh, gearing is 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 the is the name for it. This is this is borrowing money uh, with the aim of investing it to achieve a better return than the cost of that borrowing. Um, so clearly, um, you know, if you succeed in that objective, if, if, if the markets go up, the investments you buy go up very substantially, um, then gearing can work in your favour. And obviously, gearing is particularly attractive when interest rates are very, very low, which, which they are at the moment. Uh, but, you know, investors shouldn't, um, uh, you know, uh, shouldn't uh, not be aware that, that um, 
that gearing is a double-edged sword. If, you, if you're borrowing money to invest and the investments don't go well, then the impact of that would be a bigger loss. So, you know, gearing is it either gears up uh, the returns or in, if you get it wrong, it can gear them down. Um, but obviously, it's professional managers that are determining when to gear portfolios. So, you know, if you, you know, gearing, I think, can be a very useful tool for an investment trust manager in terms of, of getting better returns for shareholders. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it obviously adds risk because anything that can ex- exaggerate, you know, rises and falls, that adds, that's an element of risk. I mean, I just want to know broadly, do you think for the investment trust industry, it's been a boon to performance or it's something that's detracted in the sense that it's added risk, so it's put, put people off? No, I, I think generally speaking, um, gearing has um, has added value for shareholders over time. I mean, clearly there've, there've been, there, there will be examples where where, where it hasn't. Um, but you know, the gearing is is determined by uh, the professional investment manager, fund manager, uh, with the board, uh, and obviously the board take a very close interest in gearing and and the gearing proposed gearing strategy that the manager follows. And so it's subject to a lot of challenge. And I think as a consequence, um, you know, over the long term, gearing can, can work very, very positively for you. But I think it's important to remember that it is for the medium to long term, um, because clearly you can have some gearing and markets can move up and down. We all know markets go up and down. So in the short term, there can be particular spikes one way or another. But if you're invested for the medium to long term and you're geared through that, then uh, I think there's every chance that you'll get a very positive return on that that investment. Okay, James, finally, I just wanted to look a little bit to the future, really. I mean, how do you think the investment trusts are going to remain relevant into the future? If we're talking about it, uh, uh, the, the traditional investment trusts, so those are the ones that are, that are the older ones we talked about earlier on, those ones investing in equities of companies, uh, they will remain relevant as long as they keep performing. It's all about performance and delivering what you say on the team. And and a lot of these investment trusts, like Bankers Investment Trust, have, have been doing that for generations. And I can't see why they won't continue to do that for generations. Um, it, it, it's, it's an extremely good way of, of investing money for the long term. So I feel very comfortable that that's there. Um, obviously, we've got all these alternative uh, investment trusts now investing in alternative assets as you pointed out earlier and i think they will continue as well because the investment trust structure is a very good way of investing in those uh, those types of um, investments so i i think that like anything it depends on performance and so long as the investment trust managers continue to perform um, I think that investment trusts have a have a very rosy future. So that's sort of in the main. You see the two prongs being the mainstream assets, like some of the big global equity fund, and then some of those more alternative areas um, that are popping up, like like infrastructure and areas like that. Yeah, I mean, I think all of them have a good future. James Summers, thank you very much. Right, thank you. Okay, that's it for this week. Just a quick reminder, nothing that you've heard on the show is a recommendation to invest in a particular stock or company. And any information that we've given you about performance, past performance of an investment, remember, past performance is not a guide to future performance. Finally, thanks to James for his time. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more from us, subscribe to our channel or check out previous episodes on stepstoinvesting.com. Take care and we'll see you for the final show of the year next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.